0: Welcome to the faith and culture now podcast today we are beginning our third uh, part in a four part study on a critique of purity culture and uh, with a solution proposed for how the church should teach purity and this week in our third part we actually turn to that solution so today we're going to be talking about um, just how the church should teach purity and I'm really happy to be joined today by Michael Dennis so Michael good to have you on.
1: Good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on.
0: Sure, anytime. So uh, as we begin today, I just want to say that um, if you have been hurt or traumatized uh, because of things you were taught that were unbiblical, inappropriate, or shame-based um, in purity culture, you know, I'm sorry that that's happened to you, uh, and I want you to know that you still have value and that God still loves you and that you um, even though you may have been uh, hurt or traumatized by people trying to do something good, but misguided, uh, it in no way detracts from your value or from the love that God has for you as a person. Um, With that being said, um, we ask ourselves when it comes to purity, how do we conform our bodies to the gospel? How do we develop a more positive view of purity And uh, I would say that we've got to work hard as a church to correct the abuses and the inaccurate teachings that have taken place in purity culture, but we also want to remain true to the teachings of scripture. So we've got to provide an alternative for purity culture that promotes a better understanding of both purity and personal responsibility. And in the last uh, podcast, Steve Stanley mentioned the idea of sexual integrity. And I think that's really the best way to frame how we want to move forward. Uh, We wanna teach people to have responsibility for their own sexual behavior, their own sexual actions. We also wanna help them understand uh, the positive aspects of sexuality, uh, as well as um, uh, sort of reframe certain teachings. One of the big teachings for women is that the way you dress makes men stumble. And one of the big teachings for men is that you just can't control your mind. And if you even so much as look at a girl, you're gonna sin. And uh, I would argue that that particular teaching isn't just damaging to men, but I think it's also damaging to women because it gives them a preconceived idea of men in their minds that actually isn't true to the humanity that God has placed in us and and the people that he's created us to be. So as we begin uh, moving from here, Michael, what are some of your thoughts on how the church should go about teaching purity or teaching sexual integrity?
1: Well, um, not to hang out too much in the the critique category for too long, but you've, you've kind of given a general overview of, of purity culture as a whole, and that, and that does come from a variety of sources, not just the church. Um, there are you know, books, and uh, I'm reminded, uh, listened to a podcast recently that... Um, Christianity Today is doing called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And one of the bonus episodes that they did was with Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye in the early 2000s. It was a very influential book, and, and he's not the only one, but, but purity culture kind of became this cottage industry. But in, in, church, in church specifically, I've seen a couple of different errors uh, very recently when it comes to teaching purity. Uh, one, They're both really reactionary. One of them is uh, we're just not going to address it at all. Mm-hmm. um and that's been going on for a long time um i mean from from the sexual revolution of the 60s uh conservative evangelicals uh in many many places especially in the south had this reaction um well if if our kids are being overly sexualized which they were and are uh, then our solution to that is we're just not going to talk about it and we're going to oppose sexual education we're going to uh, really press hard on children's workers, children's ministers and youth pastors to not talk about these things. And, and the, the verbiage around that and the spirit around that, that I've heard anyway, has always been, well, we wanna teach our, our kids these things and not have somebody else you know, indoctrinate them, which I, um, I, I can support that. <laughs> the problem with that is, again, as a youth pastor, is that often those conversations don't end up happening. And so what we end up with are teenagers who don't know anything about sex. What they do know about sex from the culture is, and they are hearing these things and seeing these things, despite what their parents may think, uh, what they're seeing is is an inaccurate and and sinful and broken view of sexuality. And what they're not getting is what you're talking about, which is this positive, affirmative, uh, God-constrained view of sexuality that is good and beautiful and a gift um and so that, that's one extreme and it's very again it's very reactionary to the culture and and it's not helpful and then the other extreme more recently has been a response to purity culture which is we're going to move so far away from from purity culture that we're actually going to in an attempt to cancel purity culture we're going to cancel purity and we we can't again it's, it's almost a this, the same thing instead of not teaching about sex we're not teaching about purity we're well, we can't say these things because that might uh, that might damage a, a student's, you know, self-esteem or it may give them a false view. And there's this fear of doing the wrong thing that is keeping us from doing the right thing, which is teaching God's word, preaching the gospel, helping to form disciples. Um, and so those right out of the gate, I think those are two uh errors that we need to stay away from in terms of the church, the church teaching purity. So those are my, my initial thoughts.
0: I completely agree. You know, one extreme is let's just ignore it, which doesn't help anyone. And the other extreme is let's just reject it, which also doesn't really help anyone. And uh, I have actually um, probably seen about 15 people's testimonies lately where they've talked about how they don't even believe that the Bible teaches that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage or before marriage and um, it's that swing in the other direction that you're talking about, and um, uh, it doesn't take, well, it doesn't take long at all to point them to scripture to say, actually, what you're saying is not, not valid here. Scripture very much affirms um, this idea that sex should be reserved for marriage. In fact, um, it was so much reserved for marriage that we know the, the ancient world typically referred to unmarried people as virgins because they were just expected not to have sex outside of marriage. It was considered that taboo in their cultures.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that is, it, it, again, it's something that we have to contend with in, in our day is this, this difference between the culture that the Bible was written in and received in, and in the culture that we live in today. Uh, there's so many things that we have to sort of sift through and help students to understand that, that the way that we do you know sex and marriage and things like that today uh just would not have even been understood in that day and so this is a big topic you know when it comes to dealing with issues of, of uh, homosexuality and, and the transgender debate and things like that where the bible is silent about certain things we can't just sort of force our own cultural ideas in, in there and say well if the bible doesn't condemn it then clearly it's okay Uh, I think what we have to do is take the Bible's teaching as a whole from Genesis to Revelation and say, what what is God saying about marriage? What is the Bible saying about, you know, sexual integrity? What should we be doing with our bodies when it comes to glorifying God? Um, The Bible
0: can't mention every single thing that's going to happen in human history because there's just not enough room in the text. But the Bible has theological principles, and these theological principles um, sort of help us di- uh, guide and di- it guides and directs our conversation as to how we should think about any potential topic uh, that we should be aware of, you know, and, and have sort of a biblical position on today. Um, so you mentioned that in, in one of these extremes, uh, sometimes parents don't really want the church talking about this stuff because they say, we want to do it ourselves. And you also mentioned that, unfortunately, those conversations just aren't happening. Um, I wanted to note that we need to be open to having discussions with our children about sexual things that are age-appropriate as they mature. We also need to use the proper terms for sexuality and sexual acts and genitalia. We need to teach our children to love their bodies and to respect themselves and to commend respect from others. We live within God's plan of sexual integrity and purity. Because he loves us and knows what's best for us. We don't act pure to earn God's favor. Hmm. We teach authenticity. Uh, Brian Hausman is a speaker who typically uh, helps work with parents uh, to just sort of, uh, you know, help them become better parents that are kids. And one of the things he said was, if you teach your kids they have to be good, they get really good at hiding sins. And um, instead, he said, we need to teach our kids about being honest and moving beyond our sins and being authentic. Um, You know, we're to love our kids through their sins, so they'll feel confident to come to us when they have problems and issues. And I know in in my home, um, the kids are really good about asking me questions about things they hear at school. In the last six months, we've talked about pansexuality. We've talked about what the word horny means. We've talked about Why you don't say things like screw you, which is, um, you know, uh, not really an appropriate term. And so, um, you know, having open and honest discussions with our kids about sexuality should happen in the home before it happens anywhere else. But we also need to have these discussions at church uh, because our kids also need to see that they're not the only one in this boat. They need to see that they're not alone navigating these waters of sexuality in our culture. So what are some of your thoughts on, on that, Michael?
1: Well, no, I definitely agree with, with Hausman's statement about, you know, teaching our kids, to be honest, I I grew up uh, at, I'm going to say the height of purity culture, but I definitely grew up in an era when the, the teaching was exactly what you described earlier. It was girls dress modestly because guys can't control themselves and, and guys, you know, don't, just just don't think about it. don't don't think about it, don't do it. If you do it, you're bad, you're tainted. you're you know, if you didn't reserve yourself for marriage, then that that entire experience is going to be bad. like all of these things are swirling around. and so so what i what I ended up doing and what a lot of us ended up doing was just just hiding because if you admit this, then the consequences and, and this is not to say again that, that the Bible isn't clear on the consequences of sexual sin and how severe they are because of how powerful sex is. But at the same time, if we aren't, and this is the age old debate, right? If you, if you preach grace, then it's, it's all of a sudden license. And I would strongly push back on that because again, you know, can we say what would have happened if, and what would our response have been if this was preached or whatever? No. But I know that since I've grown and matured as a believer and begun to understand God's love and grace more, it is his kindness that leads me to repentance. It is an admission of my sin that frees me from shame instead of hiding it and staying buried underneath that shame. Um, And so helping our kids get out of that cycle, uh, helping them to be honest and, and understand that you're not all of a sudden a leper if you fail in this area, you're not, uh, unclean, uh, in the way that we have sort of constructed that within purity culture. I think that's vital.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I think when it comes to, um, beginning to talk to our teenagers about, um, you know, what they're going through and where they're at, I think we need to say to them, look, it's natural and healthy to want sex or to have sexual feelings. That's part of how God created you as a human being. But you have to be responsible not to violate other people's boundaries and to resist temptations yourself. Mm -hmm. And the key word here is responsibility. Um, Girls, the way they dress, don't make guys sin. And guys just looking at a girl doesn't make a guy sin. And um, we have to and, and oftentimes in purity culture, especially for guys, it's essentially taught that you know, everywhere you look, there's a temptation, and your whole life is just spent trying to flee the temptation, which doesn't really jive with teachings about the freedom we have in Christ. It doesn't really jive with um the uh the life that God has called us to or the teachings in scripture that we are to put aside sinful behaviors and practices in other words um the teaching in purity culture suggests that it's a constant battle right i mean there's a book every man's battle and um that that book essentially teaches that your entire life is a battlefield and in reality it's just not true it's not correct it's not biblical and um so yes if you're wondering am i saying every man's battle is not the best book to read to, for a guy to understand purity? The answer is yes, absolutely. It is not the best book to read. And um, uh, I think we need to remember that God gives us a spirit of hope and a spirit of uh, confidence, and he puts his Holy Spirit in us. when We believe in Christ, and that spirit convicts us and convicts us and gives us the strength and ability to overcome temptations. And so um, we can get to the point where Um, It's not a constant battle because we trust in Christ, but also, and I think this is really key here, and uh, I've been reading a book called um, The Great Sex Rescue, and this is something brought out in this book, and it's that the best way for guys to um, understand and move beyond these false teachings of everything is a battlefield uh, is to simply look women in the eye and treat them with respect and dignity. You know, if you um, think to yourself, oh, I can't look at her or I might sin, and then you're, you know, not giving a girl eye contact or even talking directly to her, all you're doing is making her feel less valued as a person. And you're not really helping yourself at all either. But when you treat people with respect and dignity, it's, it's a lot easier to continue in that line of thinking and not to, say, give in to uh, temptations of lust or other things of that nature.
1: Yeah, and and from a from a theological standpoint, from an anthropological standpoint, you know, the purity culture teachings of, you know, guys can't control themselves, women are just temptations, girls, you know, cover up yourself because, you know, you're, you're causing men to stumble. It basically reduces the human being to their sexual parts and their sexual desires, um, which is what we get on to the world about, uh, objectifying men and women and, and making everything about sex. It's like, it, we, we, we've simply just done that in another way. And like you said, when we, when we understand what the Bible has to teach about the value of a human being and the beauty that's there and the inherent dignity that's there, uh, and we begin to see each other as more than sexual objects, uh, we begin to see each other as image bearers of God. Um, again, it doesn't remove the temptation, but I think it puts us in a in a space where we can begin to resist that temptation effectively and begin to move past that um, and, and not pretend, not pretend is not the right word, but not just sort of cow down and say, well, this is always going to be an issue and we're always going to get beat up by it. So, you know, let's figure out a way to just abstain and put moral fences around everything. And it's just, it's not the way of. It's not the way of scripture. It's not the way of the New Testament, especially. So.
0: Exactly. And you, you nailed it when you said, you know, re- recognizing they're created in God's image. You know, um, we, we don't want to use people and we should see everyone holistically for who they are. And in order to do that, you've got to be friends with people. It's okay to be friends with someone of the opposite gender. You know, it's okay to have conversations with someone. It's okay to sit by someone of the opposite gender in youth group or in church. Like you're not going to sin just because you sat by someone or close to the invisible line between where the guys and the girls segregate, right? Um, And so uh, I think another really interesting thing that the church has taught is that um, guys are very physically minded and girls are very emotionally minded. And I think those are damaging teachings because if a girl has uh, physical feelings towards a guy, she thinks, oh, there's something wrong with me because I'm not acting like I should just emotionally be attracted. And if a guy um, is emotionally trying to invest in someone, he may feel like he's more effeminate than he wants to be or not masculine enough, not macho enough, right? And it sort of um, re. Uh, I, don't, I guess it would, I would say uh, it just, it re-emphasizes this idea that men are supposed to bury their emotions. Mm-hmm. And in reality, both men and women need um, uh, and, and are created to be both emotionally <laughs> attracted to others and physically attracted to others. And so I think instead of teaching, you know, well, guys are just physical and girls are just emotional. Uh, I think we need to to sort of reframe that to say people um, are sexual in both physical and emotional ways. And we need to um, work on as we teach that, uh, helping them embrace holistically, not just you know, not just you know seeing others holistically, but also seeing themselves holistically and recognizing that I'm a whole person, I'm not just this temptation over here waiting to happen or this train wreck of, you know, lust over here, or, you know, whatever else the case may be. Um, So we need to see ourselves as valuable and holistically. We need to see others holistically. And we need to recognize that um, uh, both physical attraction and emotional attraction are important parts of healthy relationships.
1: No, I I absolutely agree. Uh, And I think seeing, seeing each other as part of a bigger this is something i've been trying to emphasize um, with with our students um you know seeing seeing yourself and seeing one another as part of a bigger story than just what um what the world is trying to tell or what the church historically has tried to tell in terms of you know what your life is your, your life uh, i can't remember the reference right now but the kingdom of god is not consistent eating and drinking um, like What's, what's trying to be communicated there is that these, these things that we get fixated on, like sex, like marriage, and, and again, this is something the church has been guilty of, of elevating marriage and elevating sexual attraction, elevating the marriage bed as like this, this almost sacramental thing, again, not to point fingers here, but uh, this thing that, that is necessary for Christian maturity, uh, I think it does exactly what you just said. It, it alienates people who that may not be God's plan for them. Um, and I think people, guys and girls alike, when, when they don't feel this overwhelming sexual urge that everybody's talking about, quote, again, quote, everyone, they feel weird and they feel like, oh, well, I must be this. And again, the world is, has a, a chamber full of answers to why that is. Um, but, but the church's response, again, does not help matters when we fixate on sex, when we fixate on marriage. When we fixate on God's will for your life is that you find this one special person, and then you know the, the fairy tale myth of how this is supposed to work. Um, our lives are so much part of part of a, a story that's so much bigger than that. In the gospel and in God's kingdom, uh, yes, sex is a good gift. Yes, God in His Word, uh, I think of specifically Paul in First Corinthians six is telling believers to be very careful with how we interact sexually because of the dangers therein, but again, that is just one aspect of us holistically as human beings and, again, our place holistically in the kingdom of God.
0: Yeah, very much so, and uh, I think I would, I would add on to that that, um, you know, because of the emphasis we do place on this particular issue, um, oftentimes people feel like, Uh, everybody around them who's not a Christian must already be having sex, you know, even if they're 14 or 15. And in reality, all the statistical studies show that's just not the case, that's not happening. And uh, in fact, um, studies have actually shown, strangely, that in both um, Christian and non-Christian culture over the last five years, uh, the number of teenagers engaging in sexual activities has actually decreased across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Although um, you may wonder, well, you know, why is that? And is it also because they're also not having as many meaningful relationships in general or, you know, things of that nature. So there's, there's some stuff to look at there that we need to, you know, probably think through as well, but um, you're absolutely right. You know, if, if a kid who's, you know, 14 or 15, isn't really ready to date yet or whatever, like they don't need to be made to feel like, well, there must be something wrong with me because of this. And at the same time, uh, for those who are ready to date, uh, you know, we also don't need to be squashing um, those feelings to the point of, well, I'm just sinful because I, I wanna go on dates with you know someone. I think this girl's pretty, so I must be going to hell. It's like, no, no, that's not, that's not how it works. Um,
1: Sorry, that, I, I forgot to mention a key point when we were talking earlier about cultural assumptions. know when we read in scripture about you know resisting sexual temptation and not awakening love until it's time you know we're reading about people who typically got married uh right around puberty um i mean women especially when they reached the point of childbearing they were eligible to marry and oftentimes they did marry men tended to wait maybe a little bit longer but not too much and Mm -hmm. so with the lengthening of adolescence in the modern world like I think it is a disservice to students to not, first of all, say that. And again, it's not a license. It's not saying, oh, well, because you have to wait longer than these people did, you get a pass. It's here, let me acknowledge, yes, this is difficult. Yes, this is a hard thing to resist because your body is going through changes that are designed to end a certain way and they're not ending that way. And so here, let's go to the scriptures and let's talk about what it means to resist temptation. Let's talk about what it means to die to ourselves and to follow Jesus and to let him fulfill those things in us until we reach the age where this is appropriate, where we're at. And so, sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier.
0: No, I think that's wonderful. Um, You know, yeah, I mean, you're looking at the, the average age of marriage now is like 27, but the average age of marriage in the Old Testament era and even into the New Testament era was like 13 to 15. And, uh, you know, Mary was probably 14 years old when Christ was born. Uh, I mean, we don't often think about that, you know, even, even in our artwork, you know, we, we see Mary and she looks like she's about 25 or 28, you know, most of the pictures we draw of her, it's just not the case. And, um, it, it is, you know, it's, it's like, we're saying, Hey, look, you know, in the biblical era, they were told to flee temptation until they were ready to marry. But you have to do that for essentially twice as long as they did. And, um, That's a hard teaching, uh, which sort of leads us into maybe quickly discussing God's rules. And um, I think sometimes Christians get looked at as, especially if they teach, you know, abstinence and that kind of stuff, they get looked at as, you know, it's just all these rules, 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 but God's rules are there for our protection. They're for our good. You know, God sets certain standards and things in order to save us from heartache and to protect us from pain. And, uh, not just, you know, that, I mean, you know, you could, you know, get pregnant or whatever, but, uh, the, the best, um, teachings in Christianity on sex inside of marriage, uh, are encompassed in the idea that sex is to be enjoyed by both people, the husband and the wife. And you can only do that when you're in a place of open communication, when you're connected, when you are vulnerable and when you are um, emotionally unified, right? And so because of that, um, you know, I, I think God recognizes that you have to be very vulnerable and um, you have to be very connected uh, with someone uh, to think that sex is where we need to go. And when that happens, if you're not married and then things fall apart, which frequently, I mean, statistics show, Typically, if you're having sex with someone before you get married to them, the marriage ends up not happening or ending in divorce. Um, and that's across the board, you know, Christians or non-Christians, if, if that's, you know, the, the route they take. Um, that doesn't have to be the case, but statistically, that's just what we see. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, God's saying, you know, look, if you're emotionally invested in this person this much and you awaken love before it's ready, then, you know, you, you end up with a lot of heartache. And his rules aren't there because he doesn't want us to have fun or because he doesn't want us to be human. They're there because he wants to protect us and allow us to experience things in the most um, fulfilling way possible, uh, but also in the most permanent way possible.
1: I think oftentimes, and I'll use this as an example because I think this is where our minds go typically when we think about God's rules or God's laws. We well, that's Old Testament, right? The New Testament teaches grace, it teaches freedom, teaches we can pretty much do what we want because we're forgiven. And and of course, that's a, a complete, you know, perversion of, of the gospel. But when I when I when I think about the Old Testament, I think about God's, you know, rules and regulations and the law that He gave to Israel. I think about Deuteronomy chapter 30, where you know Moses has has recapped all of that for. The nation of israel before they're going into the promised land at the end of that chapter he he says to them you know I've, I've laid before you here life and death and i'm i'm begging you to choose life and and that's really where we find ourselves with god's rules is is if god is god and he, if he's the creator and he's the sustainer he knows how things work best then you know proverbs 3 needs to become true in our lives that we trust in Him with all of our hearts. We lean not on our own limited understanding. In all our ways, we acknowledge Him. We'll, you know, He'll make our path straight. But the, the verses right after that say that, you know, it's actually going to physically and emotionally and spiritually restore us into our old age if we will abide by these things. And and so often, you know, we we present this. I think by omission, more than just saying it out loud, we, we omit these parts. But I think students, specifically, but even just people in general, receive this as, well, God's got all these rules that I can't possibly follow. And so when I fail, he's standing there, you know, just disappointed in me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, God really, genuinely wants your joy. He really genuinely wants your the, the best for you, and we're the ones that make the choice to go outside of that. Um, yeah, and and yes, there are consequences to that, but it's not this sort of, you know, I was use the example of God's a kid on an anthill, you know, just with a magnifying glass, just waiting to burn somebody. That is not the God that we read about in Scripture. Um, he is serious about these boundaries, but it's the same way that we are serious about boundaries with our kids. And I tell my students this all the time, if your parent doesn't grab you by the scruff of the neck and pull you back from running into traffic, then your parents not loving you. And in the same way, if God is is not pulling us back from our own destruction, then that that doesn't make him a loving God. Um, And so
0: God's salvation in Christ provides freedom and God's moral will for our lives is there to essentially empower us Mm -hmm. to live, um, in a more abundant way. And, uh, by abundant, what I mean is, um, to live life to the fullest, you know, I, you know, God's rules are there. And when we follow those rules, we have a very rich life. And I don't mean materially rich. I mean, like, um, our, our life is full of, um, great joy. Uh, but you know, that doesn't also negate, you know, suffering for Christ or anything like that. Uh, The point is, God's rules are there for our benefit, and when we think that his rules are there um, simply to keep us down or to make us hate our life, Mm -hmm. um, then we're really missing the point. Um, I think I would like to sort of summarize some of the basic teachings of purity uh, as I think they should be seen in the church, and so I would say first, you know, God loves you and has a plan for you. God loves every person has a plan for every person for their life. God created you as a human being with desires and needs that are meant to be fulfilled in a loving and trusting marriage relationship. Um, That doesn't mean he doesn't call anyone to celibacy or singleness, but in general, um, God desires for people to be married, and he gives us desires, sexual desires, emotional and physical, um, that are to be fulfilled in the marriage covenant. Um, God has some standards of purity that are meant for our protection and benefit. And sex is a good part of God's creation. And it's meant to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. As Christians, we should not be afraid to have candid discussions about sex, sexuality, the human body, um, all that kind of stuff, uh, because all these things were designed by God and they are all good. So to repeat Sex was designed by God and is good. Uh, Sexuality is designed by God and is good. And we need to be willing to talk about these things from a positive light and a positive perspective. Sex isn't just a temptation waiting to happen. It's a significant part of our life that God has designed for us um, to have more fulfillment and joy out of life. We should also... um, remember that our value is not wrapped up in how we think or or what we have done. So in other words, um, if you have struggled with um, pornography or if you have struggled with lust or if you have um, lost your virginity uh, when you were 17 or or whatever else the case is, none of that in any way um, makes you less valuable in the eyes of God because we are all valuable and equally valuable simply due to the fact that God created us and created us in his image. And sometimes in purity culture, you're taught, well, if you've done this or you've done this, you're just not as valuable as your future spouse. What a horrible, horrible teaching. Uh, It doesn't matter what you've done. If Christ still loves you exactly as you are, so should your future spouse, male or female, right? Husband or wife. No personal value is lost because of anything we have or have not done in the realm of sexuality or, um, as Christine noted in our first part of the series, um, for anything that's been done to you. Uh, sometimes people feel like they are damaged goods simply because of something uh, someone out of their control did to them. And that's just not the case either. It doesn't detract anything from your value. And so as a church, we really need to, as we teach sexual integrity and sexual purity, we need to to remember that God created sexuality. Sexuality should be viewed as a good thing, as a positive thing, uh, but also as a thing to be protected. And the way we protect our own sexuality is that we stand in the Holy Spirit and overcome temptation. And the way that we protect other's sexuality is that we treat them with dignity and respect. We see them as a full human being um, and we see them as a person, not an object. Um, anytime someone is viewed as an object or objectified, we're taking away their value and no one deserves to be objectified and you don't observe to be, deserve to be objectified either. So those are kind of my summary thoughts on this. Michael, what do you think?
1: Uh, no, I, I agree with all of that, and I think what I think that's what that summary does, especially as you, as you come down in the end there and talk about you know value and what we've done. I think we err when we take certain teachings in the church and remove them from the, uh, the sort of cruciform nature of our faith, and we take them away from the cross and say that this is some separate issue that doesn't have to do with. gospel and that's simply not true because when we do that then we can begin to believe like you said that somehow our value and our worth and our, our our position before god is based on what we've done versus what jesus has done and what jesus has done his life his death his resurrection what that proves is your point about the fact that creation was good that that jesus did come to to restore and reclaim Uh, that good creation, to redeem us as people, because again, He sees us, excuse me, as valuable, but also to deal with our sin, because our sin is sin, and it is costly, um, and it does separate us from God, but that separation is not eternal if we will follow Jesus, if we will give Him our lives and believe in Him as our Lord, as our Savior, and then as we follow Him, even in the area of sexuality, and especially in the area of sexuality, he will, I think we can overemphasize um, moral perfection and not a growing discipleship, which is how Jesus frames this. He says, follow me. He says, do what I do, do what I tell you, then you are my disciples. And and ultimately he says, love one another. and and that teaching right there, if, if we can encapsulate all of this in one thing, that's what we're being called to do in Scripture in the area of sex, is love one another. Love one another appropriately. Uh, when, when sex is involved, with that, that love is inside of a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. And when, it, when, when we get outside of that covenant, we love one another appropriately in the ways that you've talked about by assigning dignity and worth and value and resisting the temptation to use one another as objects. Um, then, yeah.
0: Yeah, very good. Um, I think the, probably the, the last thing I want to say here today is that we have one more episode in the purity discussions, and it's going to deal primarily with the issue of abuse and consent. And um, I know that may be sort of outside the realm of what most people think of when they think of purity culture, but I think it's a significant part of sexuality in our culture And so it's something that I think deserves a little bit of time. And so hopefully you will uh, join us next time on that. Uh, But uh, Michael, thank you so much for being here today. We will see you guys next time on the final episode of the Purity, Culture, in Faith and Culture Now podcast.